KFBS. Sit Rep with Christopher Lee. Victoria, thank you very much. And the BFBS news team. It's three minutes past the hour. You, you are very welcome at today's Sit Rep Roundtable on a warm and sunny afternoon in London town. In the next hour, free Gaza or handing the terrorists victory on a plate? Are Western leaders too cowardly to save lives? Arms sales, why we're all broke? except the arms salesman, the Iran inquiry, or the Iraq inquiry, what the Americans told the Chilcot team, and why a funeral in Belfast tomorrow says the troubles have not all gone away, why the real intelligence war is in Washington, D.C. And, listen to this, is the chief of the defence staff really worth a quarter of a million a year, plus £350,000 gratuity when he goes, plus a £120,000 a year pension? Shouldn't be jealous, should we? Okay, we start uh, in in Israel. Uh, the Free Gaza Movement activists um, from their flotilla um, have been moved. They've gone home. Today there are demonstrations and there are funerals in Turkey, in Israel, in Jerusalem. The BBC is Andrew North. Andrew, has anybody been held uh, still in uh, where were you in Beersheba? Uh, as, as far as we know, there are still three Israeli Arabs uh, in detention um, and they may still face charges. We don't know exactly uh, what's, what's going to happen uh, to, to them. But as you say, uh, most of them, the vast majority of those who are on board who are mostly foreigners, uh, they, have, uh, they have now gone home, uh, gone to Turkey and then are then going to their respective homelands uh, f- from, from there. But I think what we're seeing um, is, is very much positions on both sides uh, hardening the Israelis ha- have made uh, very clear that uh, uh, they still stand by what they did. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that uh, the, the criticism from the international community is, is hypocritical. And then today they've also rejected uh, demands for any kind of international investigation, saying again that that is uh, a double standard. Um, any, uh, other, in any other instances where, say, the British or American troops uh, uh, were accused of killing civilians, according to the Israeli government, um, it would be those countries which would investigate why should Israel therefore have to submit uh, to an international investigation so you can see they're, they're certainly sticking uh, to this quite defiant stance but the Turks for their part um, are saying that uh, if there is no sign of a change uh, then, then relations with Israel are really uh, heading for, for serious trouble. I think the one um, sign of, of, of possible change that may come out of this though is that there are indications from Washington that the Americans are um, while they have in many ways stood by Israel over this, and they're certainly they're not uh, supporting an inquiry, an international inquiry. They are suggesting that it is time to uh, uh, think again about the blockade of Gaza, which of course is what has caused all of this, and uh, suggesting that Israel might want to think about uh, loosening it. Andy David, who's spokesman for the Israeli Foreign Ministry, was saying that um, this has been like these co- uh, these convoys have been like I think he called them a leaking faucet. Um, he said, we've seen Hamas doing all it can in its power to smuggle in weapons. Is there any suggestion that there were any weapons taken from, uh, from this flotilla? Hello. I think we've lost Andrew North. Andrew. Sorry, no, I'm back oh, you're, again, you're back, actually. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, no, lost, yeah, I think I did lose you for a second there. I was wondering, if, if has, has the, is there anything to suggest that there were weapons in this flotilla? 
Well, the Israelis uh, still say that uh, they did find weapons. They did show some pictures, but there's been no chance to kind of verify that uh, uh, independently. Um, they say they had also uh, separated out um, cargo from, from the ships that they were willing to allow to go into Gaza. They then say that uh, they tried to take that to Gaza by road, but Hamas would not allow it in because they had uh, various conditions. But we we have not been able to to, to look to look at uh, to, for ourselves to see what was in it. Um, the other thing the Israelis have been doing uh, controversially is releasing footage uh, from uh, some of the cameras and mobile phones that they took from uh, the, the activists, which they didn't hand back um, uh, before they left. And they're releasing footage which appears to support their case, but not the whole picture. So I think we are still getting um, somewhat of a, of a, of a one-sided uh, picture, although clearly we're starting to get some of the accounts of the activists. But that is why um, some are saying there needs to be a full and proper inquiry uh, to work out uh, what exactly happened. Are Israelis at one on this? For the most part, uh, I would say they are firmly behind their government. And I think this is one of the sort of quite significant things that comes out of this, is, is that you, there, there is, over the last few days covering this, it, there's been almost a sense sometimes that uh, we're talking about completely different incidents. The Israelis uh, are focusing that when they use the word attack, they're talking about the protesters attacking their soldiers. The outside world, people talk about the the um, Israeli troops attacking the boat, uh, and there is now almost a, a complete disconnect between the way uh, most Israelis see their situation here and the way that the uh, outside world does. Israel sees this still as very much about their security, and so. In a way, this crisis, while there's lots of criticism coming from Israel, coming from outside Israel, um, the sense you get here is that it, it's really uh, only going to harden the position, make it even harder to get um, the peace process and other things uh, to keep them on track. Israel is a nation a state, nation state that's been at war or on a war footing since 1948, isn't it? Um, it's not uh, entirely. Um, easy to reject the idea that they're used to this international criticism. They're certainly getting more and more uh, used to it, and I think uh, certainly one of the comments that I've heard a lot in the past few days is people just saying, well, you know, we expect this from the international community. They say whatever, they, they say whatever uh, Israel does, uh, it always gets attacked by, uh, uh, by the outside world. Um, there is a feeling that... Uh, People simply do not understand Israel's position, um, but that clearly makes it harder and harder uh, for, for there to be any movement um, in the peace process when the government at the moment uh, is being encouraged by its public to take a very hardline stand. Um, final point. The next ship is on its way, the Rachel Corrie. Um, Israel is going to probably have to do exactly what it did before, maybe a little more efficiently, but it's going to have to do it. That's right. I mean, clearly, uh, they, you would have thought they would want to avoid the kind of uh, uh, fiasco that uh, uh, that uh, happened, uh, the tragedy of uh, of Monday. Uh, but they have made clear they intend to stop that ship if it, if it tries to get in. Um, but uh, they may, you would have thought, uh, be trying some slightly different tactics to the ones that they used uh, the other day. Andrew North, thank you very much indeed. Um, at the SITREP Roundtable, with me from City University, the director of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, Olive Tree Programme, Dr. Rosemary Hollis. Is that the correct style? 
It's not entirely Israeli-Palestinian. But anyway, it, it brings together Israelis yes. and Palestinians, yes? Uh, on scholarships. On so scholarships. Um, also here, um, um, Global Radio News' senior correspondent, and formerly the Times Jerusalem correspondent, Christopher Walker, um, and Dr. Eric Grove from the Centre for Security Studies at Salford University. Eric, I know it's got another title. Correct. But that will do for And Professor moment. of Naval History. And Professor of Naval History. And good, good prices quoted for used car batteries. <laughs> we all know that. Christian, um, <laughs> since you mentioned the Olive Tree Programme, yes. can, can I point something out? I yes. was talking about uh, this whole episode. Can you explain exactly what it is to well, start exactly. with? Because it's it important. Is not, it's not one of these peace programmes where uh, the assumption is that if you, if you put people people from either side of a conflict together, they're somehow automatically going to get along. Like an orchestra. Um, in an orchestra, they're playing music together. They're not getting along together. Right, right. Uh, and uh, Daniel Barenboim, if that's what you're referring yes, to, I am. Is, is, is very clear about that. He says, I cannot, through this orchestra, solve the conflict. I cannot, through the scholarship programme that I direct, solve the conflict. I can't make the hatred go away. But I can help those who are born into the context of that conflict have a better understanding of what perpetuates it, what makes conflict persist, and what might help reduce it. And the other thing that happens is they can't avoid the realisation that the guys on the other side are human beings much like themselves. Mm. That complicates hating them. Mm. And my sense is, from what you were just discussing with Andrew North, is that the Israeli general public are more and more isolated from their enemy. They don't go to the West Bank, let alone the Gaza Strip, unless they're in uniform or they're an ideological settler who's determined to populate the West Bank they don't have a chance to talk to the Palestinians as human beings so that it makes it possible to feel that they're surrounded by nameless, faceless enemies. Mm. I mean, this, this is the classic thing. You ca it's much harder to kill somebody that you've actually had dinner with. Yes. Christopher yes. Walker, um, the Free Gaza movement, I mean... It, it's been running for some time, hasn't it? I think there have been nine attempts to get ships in there. The Israelis allowed three to get in there before they got very suspicious that they were actually feeding Hamas with, with, with weaponry. But I don't think, I'd guess, 95% of the world's population had ever heard of the Free Gaza movement before Monday. No, it's just another of these uh, string of names. And I think the point that Andrew made, a very balanced report, and much the best, actually, I've heard putting both sides. I mean, you've got to understand the Israeli side. You may not like it, but there was a poll this morning in Israel, 61% of the people backing Netanyahu's policy, 100%, and already hard quotes on the record, if this Rachel Corey arrives, there's only one thing we've got to do, and that's be a lot tougher with it than we were mealing about with these other people. Mm. And that's the view. There's a sort of absolute standoff. The outside world is looking at it in one way. The people of the country involved are looking at it another way. And it seems, despite all the reporting and such like, that nobody really understands. And nobody, in my view, has gone around... I, I've been watching quite a lot of the different channels 
Israelis has gone around talking to ordinary Israelis. They spend hours interviewing these activists who've got off their boats and look, you know, mostly like has-been members of Greenpeace and don't represent anybody. There's a huge advert on the back of The Guardian today supporting the free Gaza music. It's so left-wing. They're all members of left-wing unions uh, against the war coalitions. There's virtually no, nobody... Well, that's what the left-wing has always been for, though. The danger from Israel's point of view, though, is if it goes around being heavy-handed like this and being increasingly heavy-handed, then the support it gets from the rest of the world, which set up the country in the first place, if it wasn't for international action and a UN resolution, there'd be no Israel at all. And so it's very important... the Holocaust, there'd be no Israel at all. Uh, but what, what proposal has there been for anything hard from uh, the Americans who've been the very soft well, the Americans, touch. the Americans, <laughs> it basically, the, you're absolutely right. The Americans are key, and and, and the Americans, for <clears> various <throat> internal political reasons, will continue to support Israel in doing virtually anything. That isn't the, true with the Europeans. I mean, the, there is. I detect a distinct change in tone with the current coalition government. Tone, actually. but no, uh, no threats oh, to any relations. Tone, but tone is important. It, it, it creates a political context. It's moving against Israel, and the Israelis should watch out. Okay, um, John Dickey, the former Daily Mail correspondent, um, is on the line. John, um, a, a change in tone. I would have thought that one of the changes that we might have seen, or one of the natural procedures we might have seen, is the Foreign Secretary, uh, Mr. Haig, calling in the uh, ambassador uh, to St. James's, the Israeli ambassador to St. James's, and say, listen, what's all this about? He might also give him a lesson on the validity of a blockade. The Israeli government is always citing the example of the Bayer Patrol as an example for them. In fact, uh, Mr. Haig will point out uh, to the ambassador that uh, the Bayer Patrol was the result of a United Nations Security Resolution 232 of 1966 following the declaration of independence by uh, the then Southern Rhodesia government, and uh, it required all member states to break off economic activity uh, with uh, Southern Rhodesia, and that uh, uh, enabled the British government through the Royal Navy to seal off the Mozambique coast. John, um, the other side of this is what's happening in Cyprus. That's a more complex story than simply saying, oh, you can't come into Farmagusto if you think your ship has uh, got a steering fault or something like that. Well, Farmagusto is a, is a case in point because it pres- the whole episode presented a, a terribly complex dilemma for President Christophius. Uh, um, he's naturally been very supportive of the Palestinian case, but he cannot be seen in Nicosia to be supporting... Um, the ships going into Gaza because he has been calling for a boycott of all international shipping of Famagusta as an occupied port in the part of northern Cyprus occupied by Turkey since 1974. But um, he was seeing the activists for days before it hit the, the headlines and uh, he then had to issue a decree prohibiting Uh, access of any of the six ships to either the port of Larnaca or Limassol, and it ended up with Cypriots going out in little boats. The other difficulty um, is that um, in announcing that, he was very careful to uh, avoid burning his fences with the Israelis. He said that he didn't want to take any action that would harm the interests 
of Cyprus was Israel. What is the interest the in particular? The behind that, Christopher, is that uh, going on secretly at the moment are a series of negotiations between uh, Cyprus and Israel to uh, agree a memorandum of understanding on the uh, exploration of the seabed between the two countries for oil. That has really happened between Egypt and Cyprus, a very promising development with many international oil companies uh, bidding. So uh, this time, Christophius did not want to jeopardize that, that uh, agreement. John Dickey, thank you very much indeed for that. There we are. It's oil. It's always oil, isn't it, somewhere? (laughs) But there's gas off the coast of Gaza, and it's thanks to the Israelis that they can't exploit it. It might be the answer to some of Gaza's economic problems. And BG, British Gas, British Gas, who were all ready to help the uh, exploitation of that gas field off the coast of Gaza, uh, can't go ahead because the Israelis refuse to accept Palestinian gas. The last people they would want to be dependent upon is the Palestinians. Well, the Palestinians, or some of them say they're willing to accept Palestinian water, um, but not gas. Is that right? To water the tomato plants, which they then get tomatoes and send here to the United Kingdom. And that's the question of the blockade, too, which was brought up. I mean, when the Israelis say it's a double standard, well, this action occurred on the high seas, on a Turkish ship. I mean, this is a very interesting legal situation. The whole question of the validity of the blockade is at least disputable. Uh, and that, uh, and the Israelis can't just act as if, you know, it doesn't affect other people. This, this took place in Turkish sovereign territory, in a sense, on board a Turkish ship on the high seas. Okay, can I just, just, this is where we do our uh, philosophy bit. After all, it's 21 minutes past the hour. Um, somebody was writing this week and saying that um, it's a fact that it is ordinary people, um, activists are not ordinary people, but ordinary people who now take decisions to change events. Well, this is uh, presumably developing this idea of blogging and uh, citizen journalists and people using their mobile phones. And going particularly on flotillas. Uh, yes, but they haven't affected anything at all. I mean, uh, it's what happened in Iran, I think, particularly, that people are referring to. When uh, get, the only way of getting the pictures out of that revolution were by people using their mobile phones. And, and they haven't affected anything at all either. They've been banged up in on jail. The same, the same reason. Well, I, can't, I, I can't believe you just said that didn't affect anything at all. That's complete tosh. They've affected a great deal. They've caused... Are the, are the Israeli... Well, well, are the activists by quite deliberately, I suspect, provoking the Israeli action. <coughs> and it's quite interesting. The rather, a rather shady Turkish organisation had about 40 people on board the ship. But it was about 40 people who opposed the, the Turkish... Uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Israeli op- operation on board. They provoked an incident on the high seas which has led friends of Israel, like our current Prime Minister, as he says he is, to be really pretty critical of Israel. This has changed quite pretty a lot. critical ver- verbally, but I mean, when are they going to do something, all these people that are so critical? They're going to tow the, the American line and it'll all be forgotten. Hang on, hang on. Listen, uh, isn't this the point that's being made about the activists, the ordinary people, or whatever? Now, as as Rosie says, they, um, we all watch what was going on the streets of Tehran. And now what's going on the streets of Tehran? Well, it's all going on in the jails, presumably, <laughs> where they got rid of the ones they didn't like. But, but... No, I was saying is, that is that it, was how we heard about that revolution. Yes, but isn't it also true 
um, that what we have seen over the past two or three years in different places is how little um, strength, how little uh, organisation and influence some of our ex-superpowers, great powers, actually have. Well, uh, also, I mean... (laughs) It's tragic that, that no. some people have died in this, but it's one hell of a story, you have to admit. Well, it's got the crash in the, the pan is a, it's a got few all the days' aspect. wonder. Can, can, <laughs> wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What makes you so sure that if Israel is going to do the same or worse with the Rachel Corrie... Well, they said they because, yeah, uh, no, well, What do you expect them to do? Can to you wait a moment? Yeah. What makes you so sure that having done that, there will not be more attempts... I agree. They're not going to stop. Yeah, but exactly. No, but who cares? I mean, they're not getting anywhere, are they? They they're not yes, they are. Get, now, they are getting somewhere. It's, it's almost like I mean, if the Americans, if Hillary no, no, Clinton, time, mind your well, if, if Hillary yes. Clinton had made a stronger statement, I might agree with you. But yeah. frankly, it was totally ambiguous. Her remarks. But the Americans have not done has to be We about. still talk about the toll puddle martyrs. The little guys embarrass the big guys. The little ch- guys make change. These guys and guess had what happened to the toll puddle martyrs? <laughs> we still talk about That's how they earned their name, wasn't it? Yeah. But listen, I, it, I think there is Ooh. something here. It also shows the fragility of superpowerdom. The fact that you can have something like this will draw attention to something Ooh. which, for example, the United States, United Kingdom, Turkey, very good friend of Israel Ooh. until... Monday. Mm. Um, that's, that's just want to keep it low Not such a good low friend of France, though, who's been desperate to keep Turkey out of the EU. And yeah, now they'll it, have a golden opportunity. Let's not confuse it. We wasn't, <laughs> no, uh, French always do. Um, but listen, isn't this the point, though, Eric, yeah. that historically we've always assumed, and I grew up believing that, uh, you know, big government can go and do big things. Big government is sort of, here goes the mob, hang on, i better get out of here because I'm the leader. Well, I mean, of course, in a sense, I suppose, historically, mobs have changed things in the past, you know, but, uh, but I think, the, I think the, the fact that this incident has caused this crisis in relations between Turkey and Israel, and given the fact that they have been pretty close in the past... Well, they were already breaking up over the Gaza uh, Well, maybe, war. but I mean, but, 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 but this has added to it. I think it does show that this kind of activity can be extremely effective. And probably in the longer term than we might think. Okay, I want to stay in the region or rather connected to it because the Iraq Iraq inquiry chaired by Sir John Chilcott has this week published its list of witnesses it met in the United States, went to the United States for five days. Some of them rather impressive. On the line, the defence and security editor of The Guardian, Richard Norton Taylor. Um, Ambassador Paul Bremner, Bremer, yes. who was a sort of, what was he, a sort of governor-general, a pro-consul, wasn't he, of exactly, Iraq indeed, at yeah. the time. I mean, he's knocking on the head at the British suggestions that the United States yeah. were responsible post-war cock-ups. It's just, just not true, is it? Well, well, it's, it, he's, re, he's, re, he's replying to the criticism heaped upon him by especially uh, British military commanders at the time, in evidence to Chilcott also otherwise, uh, before that, um, including by uh, Lord Boysner, the uh, chief of uh, defence staff. At the time, yes. At the time of the invasion of Iraq. And they, they single out one thing. They single out uh, Paul Bremer's decision. They say it's his decision uh, in Baghdad, because he was there at the time, to prevent the hiring of any Ba'athist to help rebuild the country. Uh, so any, th- any Ba'athist at all. And secondly, uh, to uh, not to hire or to 
to uh, 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 any um, or bring back any into uniform any member of the Iraqi um, army or Republican Guard. And the British military in particular were relying on, maybe this is bad intelligence at the time, but they were certainly relying before the invasion on Iraqi formations, military formations, to help them keep law and order in Iraq. The other, one of the other characters was David Kay, who was at the time the head of the Iraq survey group. Yeah. Um, does that get us into uh, evidence on weapons of mass destruction? It does. It does, although the... Uh well, I suppose the Iraqi Shulker Inquiry can cover anything, but of course Butler Inquiry did look into that, the inquiry under Lord Butler, which was reported in 2004. But I don't, I don't know whether uh, Butler saw David Kay, but David Kay was, uh, uh, and, and his Iraq survey group were very respected people, more respected than, if you like, uh, MI6 or the CIA or whatever, and their alleged contacts in Iraq. And they went in there after, even more respected actually than maybe the, the Anspex's UN inspectors, they went in there afterwards, I remember British ministers and Jeff Hoon and others saying, don't worry, the Iraq survey group are very serious people and they will find weapons soon. <laughs> of course, they never did. And, John, uh, and, and David Kay wrote this report yes. uh, sometime later and, uh, and, and described the mistakes and why there were no weapons. Yeah, that was he, I think. Who also, they saw lawyers there, of course, which... Uh, well, that's the particularly, particularly important, isn't it? Um, I, was, I was thinking, William Taft... The fourth there is a famous name in presidential terms, <laughs> and John um, Bellinger the second. Yes, yes. Uh, who was uh, um, William Taft was a State Department legal uh, advisor. Of course, the British Foreign Office legal advisor John Woods um, was against the war. As he told Chilcott, uh, Deputy Advisor Elizabeth Wilmshurst resigned in protest of the war. John Bellinger the second was the person who. Lord Goldsmith, the then British Attorney General, flew to Washington to see rather quickly at Tony Blair's behest before he changed his mind, before Goldsmith changed his mind about the legality. Can we just remind so people... Bellinger is a key character too. Yes, can we just remind people, um, the then Attorney um, said, I think this war may be illegal. Tony Blair said, go to Washington, they'll... Basically that kind of thing, yes. Yeah, and uh, it was John Bellinger who uh, convinced him. We will presumably therefore get in the Chilcot report, yes. what we haven't had so far, and that is what John Bellinger could say to convince the British government that the war was, after all, legal. Yes. I think uh, Chilcot, I mean, a lot of people um, are very sceptical and indeed cynical about uh, the Chilcot because, uh, because of the, the report and what he's going to find because of the hearings in a rather kind of civilised British way. Um, rather like a conversation rather than a kind of uh, a, a rat-a-tat, uh, heavy um, uh, inquisitorial sort of um, uh, witness being, uh, witnesses being questioned in a very heavy way. But I think they'll be surprised. I think that they will get to all this stuff. Now, whether they quote sources or re reveal documents is another thing, but I think they go heavily into, as you suggest, Christopher, the, um, the legal aspects in which w ways which haven't been done before as well as other aspects about the lack of preparation. Richard, while you're here, could we just touch on another, and I sometimes feel forgotten inquiry, and that's the one investigating claims that uh, um, uh, British soldiers beat to death an Iraqi called Baha Musa. Right, yes, I'm not sure it's claims. I think it's been admitted, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, in, in Basra in, when was it, September 2003. Yes. Now, he was found dead, Mr. Musa was found dead with 93 yes. separate injuries. Now, the point here is not the rights and wrongs of that. Yeah. It's the fact that the then Defence Minister for the Armed Forces yes. misled everybody by saying, no, nothing, we don't hood people at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was Adam Ingram who, uh, who on um, uh, Wednesday gave evidence 
first minister to do so at the public inquiry into Bahamusi's death, who said, yes, basically, I misinformed uh, what I told Parliament um, and MPs was, when it was not accurate. He said he did not know. Uh, or he blamed a lot of it on his officials, actually. He said, I, mean, I rely on my officials to come up with accurate um, advice about how to answer questions. Um, he was never very impressive, in my view, actually, anyway, as uh, Minister of State for the Armed Forces. But uh, equally, though, uh, a lot of the evidence this inquiry, which uh, won't report till the end of the year at the earliest, is the confusion in the, in the sort of army chain of command, really, amongst quite senior army officers, about, the, about what was legal and what wasn't legal in international law, or uh, what British governments had previously said about hooding and uh, sleep deprivation and so on. And uh, there was a lot of confusion and conflicting advice in the, in the quite senior ranks of the army. Yeah, and Jeff Hoon, the then Defence Secretary, yeah. he's coming to the inquiry next Thursday? Next Thursday, June the 10th, yes. We'll be back. Richard Norton-Taylor, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Christopher, um, does this all matter now? I know that the people, you know, the dramatis personae are sort of yesterday's men, many of them, but I think it does. I, I, I think it does matter, and I think... Uh, Richard has just brought home, uh, in many ways, the background of how... It, I mean, it may not be front-page news at the moment, but you've only got to see the crowds flocking to see this film, The Ghost, that's on uh, uh, in this London. This is after Blair, after his, his uh, left, isn't Blair it? basically found as a war criminal and only able to live on an American island <laughs> and uh, assassinated... I thought uh, we were the American island. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, it turns out to be the island of Silt off Germany but it's supposed to be it's a very very top rate novel by Robert Harris uh, who was a political editor of the Observer and a close friend of Blair who saw the light and has exposed him Uh, it's just a wonderful film because he's permatanned all the time he's played by Piers Brosnan who's better known as uh, well Piers Brosnan in the film impersonating Blair but Blair himself is now known as the Orange Man when he came back he doesn't, he's not known that is he? he was recently, that's how he was described by Simon Hoggart in The Guardian the, oh well that's alright mm-hmm. um, Rosemary, the reputations are already decided aren't they? I mean, like um, former Prime Minister Tony Blair's reputation. and He he, he couldn't repair it, could he? No, he couldn't repair it. And uh, it's almost written on his face when he does appear, actually. The The very few times he does appear. Yeah, he's been notably Mm. absent recently. But I think it, it, it really must go beyond Tony Blair because surely he may have taken the lead, but he can't bear all responsibility. There's something called complicity. Mm. And I, I don't think there's a willingness on the part of the British establishment to go there. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting that two of the contenders for leadership of the Labour Party briefly mentioned at the beginning of the holiday weekend recently that they uh, that mm. Iraq was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, one of the Milibands and... Um, Ed, Ed Balls. Balls. And, Ed and, then, and I thought this this would be splendid if they, well, they weren't to even explore get, it. They weren't even MPs at the time. They, That's why they can actually say that, you see, because uh, there are no enough. responsibilities. Fair yeah. enough, but it would be correct, I think, if, they, if, they, if there was some soul-searching. At the moment, it's still parked with the Chilcot inquiry. Yeah. Talking of soul-searching, it is now... It's crikey, we are late, you know. It's coming up to 35 minutes 
after the hour. Um, you're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee. Still with me, Dr. Rosby Hollis from City University here in London. The uh, Global Radio News Senior Correspondent and formerly Times Correspondent in Jerusalem, Christopher Walker, and Eric Grove, Professor Eric Grove from Salford University. There's another inquiry about to... Uh, isn't there? Saville. Uh, explain, Christopher, what the Saville w- inquiry is about. You were, there, were you there in 73? I'm afraid I'm revealing my age. Uh. <laughs> it's 19, uh, uh, end of, ni- end of yeah. January 1972, if everybody remembers, there was a demo uh, in, in Derry, in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, the one para was there. They opened fire. As a result... 13 died there and one died later, so 14 died, and there have been two inquiries into it. This one started when? 1998? Yes, called by... Uh, the first one was agreed, basically, to have been a whitewash. The second one, law, uh, the second one, Tony Blair decided, as part of the price to get Sinn Féin into the peace talks, he would organise another one. I don't think he, he envisaged how long. He's talked about it... Been being going on for 12 years. 12 years. It's cost £191 million. It's kept hotels, restaurants, uh, lawyers... In in, uh, in absolute clover ever since. It's 5,000 pages long. It's reporting when? It's reporting on the 15th. The relatives will see it in the morning. In Derry Town Hall? Uh, in Derry Town Hall at 8.30. At 3.30, Mr Cameron will present it to the House of Commons. It's almost certain not to satisfy everybody and quite certain not to satisfy anybody at all because of the, the problems that it's dealing with and the fact that this happened so long ago. But uh, also, I think it's the sheer length of, uh, of the inquiry has worn people down. People can't sort of almost face it. Imagine that for a bit of bedside reading. Well, some people, I mean, some people... Not right. the people of Derry. I mean, for them, no. it's an issue of burning importance. And it will never uh, satisfy them. That's the... That's the no, difficulty that I think that Lord Savile's already hinted at. Yes. And also we're going to get from this perhaps, perhaps, perhaps litigation from some of the families depending on what's in the inquiry and that's one of the difficulties. I think they're planning that and also there had been, I think a f- give Blair his due, a fair hope that this would close, well once the peace deal was done so this conclusion. would be the last chapter we could now say bye bye Northern Ireland finish but it's not the case. Okay let's go from one Blair to another um, quite a different one. A few days ago President Obama's National Intelligence Director Admiral Dennis Blair resigned there are some say who say that he was on a hiding to nothing when he took on the role. There are about uh, 16 intelligence agencies in Washington. Admiral Blair was crowded out or was he doing more than he was asked to? Tom Yetlin is National Public Radio's security correspondent in New York. Tom, why did Admiral Blair go in the first place? Well, Christopher, he was uh, invited to be the director of national intelligence, which uh, in paper is a pretty impressive position. You know, he came, he had been commander of all U.S. forces uh, in the Pacific, uh, retired Navy admiral, four-star admiral, uh, so he had intelligence background, and he, and it seemed to, it would have seemed to him to be an important position. You know, in the aftermath of 9-11, there was a great deal of concern in this country that the intelligence, the various uh, intelligence agencies, 16, as you say, uh, were not speaking to each other, were not sharing information, were not connecting the dots, to use the old cliche, uh, and the director of national intelligence position was created 
uh, precisely to fill that function, to meet that need. Uh, and so this is a, a position that in theory should have been pretty important. Tom, tell me, why are there 16 agencies? Well, they, it's really not surprising. It's because so many agencies of the U.S. government uh, have their own intelligence components. I mean, the Marine Corps has its own intelligence uh Agency, the Army, all the all the military services have their own intelligence components. The State Department, the Treasury Department, the Energy Department, uh, you know, they all have uh, their own intelligence agencies doing their own work. Uh, they, these sixteen agencies actually span six uh, cabinet departments. Right. Do you know, I was I was looking at uh, an outline anyway from a Senate in- Intelligence Committee report this week. We're talking of systematic failures across U.S. intelligence. Now, it's probably an international uh, disease anyway, but that's not very good, is it? No, I think the I think the report you're talking about, Christopher, is in in the was issued in the aftermath of this failed Christmas Day bombing when uh, you know the the suicide bomber, or the would be suicide bomber, got all the way to to uh, just outside Detroit, you know, with a, a bomb in his underwear and had not been detected along the way, even though. He had, uh, you know, a number of warning signs uh, had been raised, and uh, it was a perfect example of agencies not sharing what information they had, uh, even though this new structure uh, was created precisely for that purpose. So it's not really surprising that the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, issued such a scathing report about the failure of the intelligence bureaucracy to do what it was supposed to do. This this job that the Admiral had... Um, it, it, it comes from the Intelligence Reform Act, doesn't it? Right, yes. I'm just wondering if, if, if perhaps the Act gave the DNI a bit too much room. Uh, it, it didn't specifically say, this is your task. I think that it, it, there's a lot of ambiguity uh, in the law regarding the Office of the uh, Director of National Intelligence. You could either say he was assigned too much authority or not enough authority, because... On paper, he's assigned a lot of authority, but in the bureaucracy, what really counts is authority over budget, budgets, budgetary authority. He had the, he had, he supposedly had the responsibility for supervising, coordinating, overseeing all the intelligence work of the U.S. government, but he did not have budgetary authority uh, over those agencies. So, for example, the Defense Department, which is by far the largest, um, has the has has a, a variety of intelligence agencies uh, within it. Um, the Secretary of Defense continued uh, as the Cabinet Secretary there to have budgetary authority over those uh, over those sub agencies. So that was the problem that he and any DNI faces, which is that in theory they're supposed to coordinate this work, but in practice they don't have authority over the budgets of those agencies. Right. Tom, do you know it sounds just like home? Um, <laughs> Tom Gelton from uh, NPR, thank you very much indeed. Anytime, Christopher. Uh, I want to go to uh, Belfast now because uh, tomorrow uh, Bobby Moffat will be buried in Belfast. Now, Bobby Moffat was murdered last Friday around the Shankill, the Shankill Road when two masked gunmen shot him. Mr Moffat is said to have had links with the Loyalist paramilitaries, the Ulster Volunteer Force, the DUP MP for North Belfast, Nigel Dodds, said that people, P 
people in the Shankill should be allowed to attend Mr Moffat's funeral without fear. Maybe that's not going to happen. What's going on? On the line from Belfast, the minister of the Methodist Church in the Shankill Road, the Reverend Jim Ray. Um, why is Bobby Moffat's funeral such a test for community relations? Well, I think there's obviously underlying paramilitary factors. Um, the fact that there's a, obviously the fact that he was murdered in a public place in the middle of the day on a packed road with children, the, the grotesque nature of the murder, and the fact that um, it has created tremendous division and tremendous fear in that community. Uh, there's always been the underlying fear of paramilitary organisations feeling that they're never too far away that they're, they're underneath there just controlling things. And I think that this has brought about a realisation to people that this is how it is on the Shankill Road at the present time. There are a lot of people, Minister, that um, during the past 30 years certainly would say that it's always been like that on the Shankill. Well, certainly in the, in the, in the years of the Troubles, it has been like that on the, in the Shankill and Obviously, Shankill Road has been a target of terrorism, of Republican terrorism. One remembers the Shankill bomb. And there have been um, feuds between loyalist paramilitary organisations and people have been killed. The thing is that over the last few years since the ceasefires, there has been certainly a degree of calm. And this kind of grotesque murder has not taken place. Now, It's only fair to say that, in fact, underlying and underneath all of that, there is still the control of the paramilitary organisations. It also suggests, doesn't it, that within the community there is no uh, identifiable leadership? Yes, you're right. I think that it's quite obvious that the community does need responsible leadership and that there's a lawlessness and an anarchy that underlies all of this. And uh, that's the fear, because who speaks for the community? Who is the voice for the community? Very often the churches have been actually been criticised very badly by the paramilitary organisations. But um, I think the churches have shown courage and have taken a lead and have done in the past, and are doing so at the moment. And tonight we're having a, a vigil at 8 o'clock outside the spot or at the spot where Mr. Moffat was actually murdered and I would expect to see very large numbers of people attending that. But it's also true that a large number of people have been warned off going to the funeral and that is fear at its worst, isn't it? Yes, and I understand that is true and there has been some evidence of that in text messaging and what people are hearing and there's certainly I've experienced people passing the floral tributes and uh, uh, shouting obscenities across the road of people standing there. I have personally witnessed that. But I think there is a mood in that community that they really are saying, we don't want any more of this. And I think there's a, a mood there that is really prepared to stand up. And I would say that that will be expressed. Mm. You know, in spite of the fact that, that, that people are fearful and some people may feel so threatened that they can't either go to the funeral or come to the, this event this evening. There are still people out there in that community who are going to stand up. It was obvious on Sunday night there would have been 600 people out on Sunday night on the street. Mm. Jim Ray, Reverend Jim Ray, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, 
Chris Walker, you were the uh, Times correspondent, weren't you, in, in Ireland, chief correspondent mm. in Ireland. Um, something that puzzled me the other day when somebody said to me, you know, there are more of those steel barricades in Belfast today than there were before the peace agreement was signed. How can that be? Yes, yeah, rather like, you know, a photograph tells more than words. A statistic does occasion. You're absolutely right. The last figures I were able to get hold of was that there were 18 of such barriers called euphemistically peace walls. They're huge, mm. very imposing structures. You can't climb them. You can't climb them uh, in the 1990s, and today there are 40. So you can see exactly the way things are going. In fact, the whole community has become more polarized uh, as a result almost of, of the peace treaty because people have just retreated into their tribal sections. I think underlying this enormously depressing uh, set of statistics is the fact that education is virtually totally segregated uh, across the whole province and as long as that's the case people rather as Rosemary was saying with her project you know people don't get the chance to meet from the very beginning so and i've been on the sides of these peace walls or you can't blame somebody who lives near it for not wanting it down because you know things thump in and even though they're hugely high i don't know 40 or 50 feet suddenly a great bit of paint comes over can can i also say because it's been bothering me in the back of my mind what we discussed at the beginning of the program about what role the flotilla in changing history, mm. if any. And I, I think I've uh, arrived at my understanding of what it means. There is an Israeli writer, he's a very uh, famous and acclaimed Israeli writer, Amos Oz, who's written in The Guardian and in the New York Times. He's a novelist. Mm. Yes. yes. Indeed, yeah. and served in the Israeli armed mm. forces, and a good nationalist. But nonetheless... Uh, alive and alert and looking to see what's really going on. And he Mm. has pointed out in in both newspapers that you do not kill an idea Mm. with military force. And this is the message of this whole episode, this last few days, that more military force by Israel will not solve their problems. And... Uh, the, the the business of uh, Northern Ireland reminds us that the hatred and the suspicion doesn't go away. The best you can hope for is less force because force ain't going to solve it. That's right. And the, the paradox of the peace process is exactly this, that in fact there is. Which, can we just remind people that it was 1998... That the, the peace process, process just started. The Good Friday, the Good Friday, Friday agreement. agreement, yes. And in fact, the, the, the progress that has been made is quite remarkable. But in a sense, symbolic of it is the fact that the government, the power is now shared between the two most extreme political parties. And that in itself is... Martin ref- McGuinness's deputy yeah, first minister. That's right, Sinn Féin and the DUP. Now, this reflects the basic split in society. And the price we're having to pay for the diminishing of violence to a very, very considerable extent, I mean, the, the odd murder here and there, the, the odd outrage here and there, but nothing like it was in the Troubles. Um, that's the price that is being paid. What, what, the only thing I think one can hope for is that as What's people... What's the price? The price is the extra division in society, the fact that everything is segregated, the peace walls are there and so on. The reinforcement of the division The reinforcement division of there. the division, exactly. Mm. Which um, suggests it'll erupt again one day. Well, it may, although I'd, I'll be optimistic for once, mm. and I think that perhaps, in fact, if there is a continuation of peaceful relations between the communities over decades, 
one might well see a greater acceptance by one community of the other. Can I try something else on you there? Uh, because it extends from what we're seeing in Gaza, in, on, on the West Bank, in, in, to some extent in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and everywhere that we're involved in trying to clear up trouble. And that is this idea that there are certain groups in those societies, especially <coughs> young men, supposedly mm. unemployed, mm. etc., uh, disconnected, who have got nothing once there is a peace process. What else mm. do they do? Mm. And it's tribal rites of passage. I mean, I, I've now been several times to Northern Ireland and I'm about to go to the Republic with a group of Israelis and Palestinians to learn from the Irish about their centuries of conflict mm. with the English. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that really fascinated me century. was the, mm. the, the, in the north, uh, the young men who used to build the bonfires and used to guard the bonfires overnight as they were building in different neighborhoods uh, from snitching mm. from other neighborhoods, all of this, the rituals that went with the tribal warfare in different neighborhoods of different cities in Northern Ireland uh, has had to be replaced with something else, and football isn't mm. enough. Mm. And still we've got, we're very close, this is why this business on the Shankle is so uh, dangerous, is that we're just approaching the marching season, mm. which is when so orange... July men, starts with... We start July, July the 12th, but no. it's already started. I mean, last week it was very interesting, it didn't get a lot of publicity here, but there's a small, uh, you know, a small uh, Catholic town where the, the loyalists marched through, and yeah. it ended up with eight-year-old kids being spat at, having lighted cigarettes, thrown out and you and I have stood there when it's happened yes but it's all good I mean for the last two or three years it's been mercifully fairly peaceful well Jim Ray Ray was saying that wasn't it he was saying it's been okay Hmm. but it was the nature of the killing of Bobby mm. Moffat. I mean, let's not feel too... Well, these people are supposed to be on ceasefire. That's people right. who, in the middle of the day, somehow found... Uh, weapons have been decommissioned. Oh, decommissioned, so, you know, except the ones that you've got. That's right. You know, it's... Uh, this but is was... a society that doesn't do things as we'd expect. No. But it is a province of the United Kingdom. And Absolutely. then people... Um, I, I, I About rang 50% of it don't like that very much. No, but I <laughs> rang somebody the uh, night before last, and I said, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, who's, who's in Belfast? I said, what's, what's going to happen on Friday at the funeral? Oh. And he said, probably nothing. He said, probably nothing. He said, the worst thing that happened, that this was in broad daylight, oh. and as Jim Ray, the Reverend Jim Ray says, kids playing around, yeah. these two guys walked up, Dressed in yellow uh, boiler suits <laughs> and masks, you know, no. it's not exactly quietly done down a back street or something. This no, was, it, this no was deliberately to tell a bit. And the actual message is that this gentleman, Mr. Moffat, yes. had fallen out with the UVF and their subgroup, the Red Hand Commandos, because his own nephew had been driven out of Northern Ireland. Yeah. Can I just shift on to something really sort of, oh, I don't know, it's a story that will cheer up the MOD and have the Treasury sneering. <laughs> Treasury always sneers, doesn't it? Uh, remember the world economic crisis? <laughs> uh, well, our house does. Well, while governments across the world have been borrowing heavily in order to spend, it seems the defence industry has benefited most of them, uh, more than most. According to SIPRI, that's the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, worldwide military expenditure uh, shows a 5.9 rise in real terms. 
that is a lot of money. Where's the United Kingdom in this? The United Kingdom is one, two, three, fourth. That's Fifth. right. Higher than people might think, actually. Yeah, we spend mm. more than Russia. Eric, we why? spend more than Russia, yes, because Britain is a country that still sees it being as an important part of its national capability to be able to project power at a distance. If you project power, that's um, expensive. Now, By hang on, hang on, that's not right. That is not right. It's, it's, as somebody once called it, what was the expression you used, Tosh, earlier on? Listen, we, the reason we spend more is because we've got more. Well... The reason that... And also the Saudis are good enough to give us some uh, in return for some kit that we don't... We don't actually need. Or we need. hope no. I sta- I, use. I stand by my original comment, because if we didn't... I mean, we could, if, we, if we wanted to go to a Little England policy and just sort of have a few patrol boats around and a, and, and a, and a, a militia army... We don't have any little patrol boats. We, we, have a f- lo- we have several there in the hands of the University Royal Naval Units, but, but that's a side issue. The... the um, the, the point is, but I think you, you do have a point in that, uh, considering we spend so much, Britain spends as much on defence as all of South America put together. Now, yes. now well, if some you, people from 82 would say thank goodness for that. Well, exactly mm-hmm. right. But the point is, mm-hmm. is everything that's going on the defence budget going into sort of interminable studies, inter- in, interminable procurement projects that are, are more paper than ships, more sealing wax than ships, as somebody said once? Yeah, but let me give you another figure then. In terms of gross domestic product, and that's really important, that's what defence spending is. It's not, it's not the dollar bills or the, or the pound sterling. It's, it's a percentage of gross domestic and it's about product. The biggest lot in the Middle East, not us, not mm, America, right. not Russia, not France. What we, what we spend is about average for and a European country. We have a big country. hand in that. And America is paying, giving Israel and Egypt huge amounts of defence uh, money. Whether that comes out of the defence budget or not is another matter. Exactly. Mm. It's, well, it's, 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 it's Surely it's what Eisenhower said it was. It's the military-industrial complex. Mm. Yes. Mm. It suits a Keeps lot of people going. in Civvy Street as well as Dennis uh, in Healy, the military. Dennis Healy, the defence mm. secretary, Labour defence secretary, said they were British, uh, British defence industry always likes the a, a Labour government because we realise its jobs, Absolute, and not just for the boys. Right. <laughs> Listen, talking about money, <laughs> talking about money, can have a go at this. I noticed this week, probably everybody noticed it last week, that the Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, Chief Marshal, Sir Jock Stewart, is the fourth highest paid official or person in Whitehall. In the whole of Whitehall, he gets about a quarter of a million pounds a year. He gets uh, official service residents, costs taxpayer 37000 That's not bad, looking at MPs' expenses, I suppose. <laughs> Good Lord, it's about a duck house. Uh, it word, is, a it? duck house. Do you know that guy <laughs> never actually got the duck house? Um, he's got a pension pot of more than 2400000 millions, and when he goes, eventually, he gets a gratuity of £350,000. Question, is any, not this one, he's a good man, is any uh, Eric uh, defence secretary worth that sort of money? Well, is, is any senior Sorry, officer wor- not worth chief that of money? Staff. Uh, well, if you're at the top of an institution, which actually, as far as the senior officers are concerned, has been paid quite well and has been for a very long time, actually, much to the chagrin of some of the civil servants working uh, working with the armed forces, it's not too surprising. On the other hand, it is true if you compare this kind of money with money that is made outside the defence sector Ooh. in in in. Uh, uh, in private organisations of rather less responsibility, you see huge amounts being paid. Mm. And, and I think it's true, too, although I haven't seen the figures in detail, that there are people working as senior civil servants who cannot be paid on the civil service scale because they've been brought in from industry and they're paid way over the odds 
to actually get them to work. Mm. They're considered to, to be um, to be worth that. Have we got two minutes? Put that into context. I was going to say, on a trip to Iraq in 2006, I was asking people in the private security forces uh, working for the British government what they felt... Um, I, I was asking also the, the, the service personnel what they felt about the guys in the private forces making more than them. And the best answer I came across was, so long as you've, you've, you've done your job for Her Majesty's Armed Forces first, and then you join the private security forces, then you've got the best of both worlds. Christopher, you've got 20 seconds. Well, Patricia Hewitt has just become a director, a, form, a former government minister. Yeah. She's getting 150000 for becoming a director of BT. Now, you know, that puts put this uh, man in context. He, that doesn't make... You say quarter of a million, it's 250000 It's not enough. Not enough, is it? No, not enough. That's it for this week. Um, my thanks to Rosemary Hollis, to Christopher Walker, and to Eric Grove. If you've missed anything, go to bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. Um, and we'll be back next week, same time, four o'clock. Until then, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary. Mary's in the hut. Sitrep with Christopher Lee.